Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Music Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Ben Westoff, the author of Original Gangstas, the untold story of Dr. Dre, Easy e Ice Cube, Tupac Shakur, and the birth of West Coast rap. Our conversation explores how NWA was formed and the conflicts that split up the band. We then follow these figures through the night. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Music Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Ben Westoff, the author of Original Gangstas, the untold story of Dr. Dre, Eazy-E, Ice Cube, Tupac Shakur, and the birth of West Coast rap. Our conversation explores how NWA was formed and the conflicts that split up the band. We then follow these figures through the 1990s as they influenced the shape of rap music, culminating in the deadly beef between Tupac and Biggie. Hello. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Hey, so let's get started by exploring how this book came about. How did you decide to write a book about West Coast rap? In high school, I was, along with a lot of the other people I was in class with, obsessed with this music, stuff like Dr. Dre's The Chronic and Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style. And they came out while I was in high school in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I the music really stayed with me as I became an adult and... In 2011, I became LA Weekly's music editor, and while I was the music editor, I got the chance to interview a lot of my childhood idols, these guys like Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Ice Cube, and so the book kind of developed out of there. So did you know you were going to be writing a book when you started doing these interviews, or did it kind of blossom into a book? Yeah, it basically blossomed into a book. It was something that, you know, the more I talked to people the more I got the lay of the land, the more I realized that the story of West Coast, the gangster rap era in particular, had never really told the way that it, it could be told. Well, um, one of the things that really struck me as I was, was reading your book is that um, you really delve pretty deep into a lot of the beefs and a lot of sort of the conflicts that existed between um, some of these folks. Um, how difficult was it to get some of these people to talk on the record about what had happened? I think it was less difficult than I thought it would be. You know, this, the stuff that takes place in my book originally, most of it happened 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And I think if I were trying to interview people about these beefs, about these conflicts, right when they were happening, most people probably wouldn't have talked to me. But I think there's been some time and some distance that now, now people are, are fine sort of going into detail. Did you get the sense that any anybody was hesitant or was maybe trying to still shade the truth as they were talking to you? People who wouldn't talk to me, like Easy's widow, whose name is Tamika Woods Wright. And a lot of people have really negative things to say about her. She thinks that they think that she hasn't really done with Easy's legacy, with Easy's record label what people would have wanted to her to 
that she hasn't shared the spoils of his great wealth with his family. So she wouldn't talk to me and others. There are some others, too. But everyone who I did talk to, I really got the sense that they were on the level with me. And I did a lot of fact checking and really dug in to corroborate people's stories. And for the most part, I, I think they really were honest. Well, um, you mentioned Easy e and um, he takes up a, a – a, I mean, you, you talk a lot about him in the book. And it seemed to me that you maybe developed maybe a little bit of a soft spot for him. I mean, it seemed like – while there's moments that you're certainly critical of him, it seemed like you also um, – I saw a lot of goodness in what he was doing and, 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 and in his character. Definitely. Um, for those who don't know, Easy e was the, basically the founder of NWA as well as its label, which was called Ruthless Records. And he was the one who brought the gangster image to NWA. He was a drug dealer in Compton during the height of the crack cocaine era. He was a member of the Crips. And he was really doing a lot of the stuff that NWA rapped about. And, it, you know, partly it's because he died of AIDS in 1995. But most everyone I talked to had nothing but positive things to say about Easy. People remember him as being really generous, as being really true to the area that he grew up, Compton, California, and being, you know, in his own odd way, even a family man, which seems strange considering he had 10 kids by almost as many different women. But he really, he cared for his kids. He cared for the artists on his label. And a lot of people remember him as a really good guy. And uh, you actually tell a, a kind of funny story about how he got started uh, dealing drugs. Um, could you maybe share a little bit of that here? He was coming up in South Central, and he served as the runner, as it's called, for his cousin, who was a, a more major drug dealer in Compton. And so he basically was in charge with de delivering the drugs after the sales, and he did kind of the, the little nitty-gritty stuff. But his cousin one day showed him this, this stash house, basically, that had all these drugs, all this crack cocaine in it, and it was kind of hidden away. And he, he showed Easy where that was. And then his cousin was murdered very soon afterward. So Easy returned to this stash house and found not only all this, this all these drugs, but a ton of cash as well that was all banded up with rubber bands and little squares. And so he took this this crack and this cash and he basically started his own business from there. And it was the profits from this business that he eventually used to start his record label. And, and how did he get hooked up with Dr. Dre, who, well, you can maybe describe a little bit who Dr. Dre is and, and why their kind of getting connected was so important for West Coast rap. Dr. Dre was a DJ, an aspiring DJ from the neighborhood who lived not too far away from Easy in Compton. And he was caught up um, playing at this place called Eve After Dark. It was sort of a disco, electro, early hip-hop club not far from Compton. And everyone was sort of emulating Prince, if you can imagine that, in their clothes particularly. So Dr. Dre and his group were called the World Class Wrecking Crew, and they wore makeup, 
They wore sequins. They had these, you know, very Prince-esque kind of Morris Day in the Time outfit. And they even did a song and dance routine. So it was very far away from what we came to know as gangster rap. But when he partnered up with Easy, Easy said he'd be willing to bankroll some of these new projects that Dr. Dre wanted to do, which were more hard-edged. And Easy himself wanted to make music that was reflective of the the life that he was living in Compton. And so when Easy and Dr. Dre got together, they formed the the nexus of NWA. And that was sort of the jumping off point for Gangster Rap to really explode. And so um, would you describe Dr. Dre as being as connected to sort of um, the gang life as someone like Eazy-E was? Definitely not. Dr. Dre hated gangs, really. He, he moved around a lot as a kid. And I think that's why he was never in a neighborhood too long. Sometimes just by living in a neighborhood, a gang would claim you. But Dr. Dre even made an anti-gang song with the world-class wrecking crew that's called Gang Bang You're Dead. And it's it's really striking. He's ba- They're basically ostracizing gang members for their clothes and drinking 40 ounces and kind of making fun of them. And then he would change his tune with that very quickly when he joined NWA. So the sort of the standard story in the music industry is, you know, these artists, they, they toil for a long time and then some person like Clive Davis sort of magically hears them and then they get signed to a major label. Um, is that the story behind NWA? There is some similarities with that. Although Ruthless Records, Easy's label, really started exploding in L.A., based on their own work, and particularly a song called Boys in the Hood, which Easy e rapped, and that gained local traction. Ice Cube was the writer on that song, and Dr. Dre was the producer. And eventually, Easy was able to get the ear of a talent manager named Jerry Heller, who was much older. He was already in his 40s, and he was a veteran music manager and talent booker who brought Pink Floyd and Elton John to the U.S. for the first time. So Easy really wanted to meet with Jerry Heller because he thought he could take the group to the next level, and he succeeded in doing that. Jerry used his connections, and it, it wasn't an easy sell, at least at first, because of all the profanity in NWA's music. But eventually, Jerry got them heard by the right people and won them a a good... Uh, distribution and record deal with an independent label called Priority Records. And, I mean, Jerry seems, Jerry Heller seems to be a a key piece in the story because pretty quickly after they recorded their first album, there was um, a lot of conflict around money and ownership rights. So um, who was Jerry Heller and, and what did he see in um, NWA and in the sort of fledgling West Coast rap that it seems like a lot of other people didn't see. Jerry Heller was a white Jewish middle-aged man who had had success earlier in his career, like I said, but when he got around to hearing the LA rap, particularly NWA, 
he was in a rut in his career and he was living with his parents. He didn't really know where he was going to go next, but this music really captivated him. Obviously, the performers came from a different background. They were from the streets of South Central Los Angeles and Compton, and he didn't necessarily identify with the lyrics or what they were talking about, but he could feel the urgency in the music, and he could tell that these were beats and songs and messages that were really going to go over. He could tell it was rebellious music that kids would like, and so he, he took a shot with it. And, and yeah, as you said, his tenure would be very controversial. I got the chance to interview Jerry Holler. It was one of the last interviews he did before he died. And he, he was very abrasive. I got the sense of why some people love Jerry Heller and some people hate him. I showed up for an interview and he was going to show me Easy's house. They only lived two doors down from each other. And Jerry was very sweet to let me see Easy's house. He showed me Dr. Dre's house. And we had a nice conversation. That is until I wanted to start doing a formal interview. And he was like, I'm not doing this. You know, he he demanded to get paid for the interview. He he got really prickly really fast, and it, it took a lot of sort of cajoling and and to eventually get him to soften and and do the interview with me. I I kind of asked about Jerry Heller, but I think I have not asked enough about Ice Cube because I think Ice Cube is a key piece of the story as well. So where was Ice Cube? Was he connected with Dr. Dre and? Um, with Easy E before he got involved in the band, was he? Did he have a similar upbringing as those two, or was he a little bit different? Ice Cube lived in South Central growing up, and he had more of a nuclear family and almost kind of middle class. Like his parents were gainfully employed, and he had a good family structure. He lived just down the street from one of Dr. Dre's cousins, basically a guy named Sir Jinx. And they made music together in Sir Jinx's garage. So Ice Cube went to high school in the Valley. He got on a bus every day and went and, you know, rode more than an hour to get to get a really good education in the Valley. And but when he came home, even though their neighborhood was was not terrible, there was still it was the 80s L.A. Homicide rates were at an all time high. There was gang warfare. And so. Yeah, Ice Cube knew plenty of people who were involved with with this lifestyle, and he watched them, and he wrote songs based on the experience of other people he knew. And so Ice Cube had an amazing talent as a songwriter, and even before he became a rapper, he wrote songs for other people like Dr. Dre and Eazy-E, and he, he fit perfectly into this group NWA once they were getting formed and it was his idea that was responsible for their most famous early song, which is fuck the police. So um, now did these guys all get along in the beginning or um, in retrospect, can you see the seeds of conflict in, in, in these three, these three important men um, in NWA from the beginning? They all got along at first. Yeah. But they were young kids. And when NWA exploded, they sold millions of records right out of the gate. It wasn't long before all the money in the picture and became a way to sort of drive them apart. 
And Jerry Heller was was involved with this controversy too. Ice Cube left NWA after only one album, their their debut straight out of Compton. And he said that Easy E, who is the owner of the label, and Jerry Heller were getting paid at a much higher rate than he was. And he was complaining that he wasn't seeing his share of the proceeds. You know, it was it was a time when NWA was selling millions of records. They went on a tour all across the country, had sold out shows, and he was still living with his parents at home, washing the dishes, and he thought something wasn't right. So when he left um, the group, how did Dre and Eazy-E respond? Eazy was really upset. He might not have have shown it, but Eazy didn't think it was fair. Jerry Heller didn't think it was fair. To this day, Jerry Heller said that Ice Cube got what he should have gotten. And it just takes a long time in the, the music industry for the, the profits that you earn to come through. And But, you know, they, they soldiered on without him. And their second album, NWA's second album, is, is noticeably different. Whereas Ice Cube really had the sort of driving social message on songs like Fuck the Police, like anti-police brutality message. On NWA's second album, they kind of left most of the social, the, the political, politically conscious stuff behind. And it's very sort of shocking for shocking sake. And there's all these sort of hyper misogynistic songs, stuff about, you know, murdering women and it really takes it takes a turn after Ice Cube leaves. Well, this is kind of a good moment then to kind of ask some of these big questions about sort of the politics, the cultural politics of gangster rap, um, because Ice Cube is seen, as you said, more political, was more politically um, engaged. But I think like Dr. Dre doesn't really seem to be very politically engaged. So how do we look back? And now that it's almost 2017, um, how political were these groups? How should we understand the role of gangster rap um, in society? I think there's a lot to unpack when you talk about gangster rap. And I think sort of the most enduring legacy is the stuff we, we talked about, the anti-police brutality message, the, the social consciousness, the, the black power um, sort of element that that came back, and there was there was talk on songs like Straight Outta Compton, on songs like Fuck the Police, even on I, songs like Ice T's Cop Killer, about how people that were living in urban environments were being repressed by the police, and that's that's a strong message and one that hadn't been voiced in popular culture that way at all. But at the same time, there's a lot more that comes with gangster rap. Like I said, the misogyny. There's also, uh, you know, a strong materialistic element. There's this kind of the thing that NWA was doing after Ice Cube was left was sort of just trying to offend everyone and anyone with this sort of over the top sort of songs about about raunchy sex and and all this sort of stuff. So. You, you kind of have to take the good with the bad, but as Easy e would put it, you know, it was a chance to, to say whatever we wanted to say, and the restrictions had been lifted because Ruthless Records was an independent label. They really didn't have to answer for anybody, and this idea that they could 
have complete artistic expression was one that really was their lasting, most lasting legacy, I would say. And I mean, we're, I mean, how aware um, in those early days were at NWA of um, like of the black arts movement and black Panthers, um, because in some ways I think in retrospect, a lot of cultural critics see a connection. Did, did they see themselves as being connected to some of those um, earlier poets and leaders? Ice Cube definitely would have seen that. And Dr. Dre he listened to groups like the, the Watts Prophets and the Last Poets, and he may incorporate some of that music, some of those sounds into his music later on albums like The Chronic, which he worked on with his stepbrother Warren G. But Easy E was was very apolitical, and this was a time when there was the, the movement to fight apartheid in South Africa, and Easy E was very dismissive of this, and he said, you know, in South Africa they're not saying free Compton, you know, they don't care about us, so why should we care about them? The the person who really took the political consciousness to the next level was Tupac Shakur who came on the scene in the early nineties and he was the son of two black Panthers and he incorporated their messages very explicitly in his music. And he was the most proud to, to really carry that torch. Well, turning over to, to Tupac, I mean, it seems like Tupac, well, did he come from the Bay area, not LA? And how does that, how does that geography matter in hip hop? Tupac was born in New York and he lived in New York in Manhattan in the Bronx for his first years and then moved to Baltimore for high school where he went to the School of the Arts. And then before he graduated high school, he moved out to the Bay Area and it was there that he really came of age musically and he became a roadie for the group Digital Underground and then a backup dancer this was right before they exploded with the Humpty Dance. And if you if you watch on YouTube, you can see a video of him dancing back up to the Humpty Dance on Arsenio Hall show, which is well worth watching. But that's how he really got his start in the music industry. And he, he took on a solo career after that. And it wasn't until later that he became that he came down to L.A. And so people think of the the Bay Area sometimes is a little more politically enlightened sort of mentality. And Tupac definitely had that when he was with Digital Underground. And he maintained it for, for a lot of his career, sort of up until the end, really. I think I've always had a hard time getting my head around um, the, sh- the relatively short years, but the, the tremendous amount of change that happened within Tupac's um, time when he, he was very popular. Um, how would you describe kind of his growth and how he changed as an artist during that time period? He really came out of the box pretty strong. He had a, a good sense of his his vision, his his style, the themes he was going to cover, and he, you know, he worked really fast. He always felt like it always seemed like he knew his time was going to be limited, and he recorded at a frenetic pace and he he got to work with increasingly better producers including dr dre when he was at death row records and so death row was sort of the last phase of his career they helped 
bail him out of prison after he'd been convicted of sexually abusing a woman. He was on appeal. And this was a time when he felt very paranoid. He'd been shot. He felt that his friend, his former friend, Biggie Smalls, knew that he was going to be set up to be shot in advance and hadn't told him. So he basically went on a tirade against Biggie and Biggie's label. And that's when his music sort of took a turn. He went away from the more politically conscious ideals and became more of what we think of as a traditional standard gangster rapper. And it was sort of this heightened uh, invective and these taunts against Biggie and his label that kind of set the wheels in motion for him to be murdered. And and what was the, I mean, originally Biggie and Tupac got along actually pretty well. Isn't that correct? Absolutely. Tupac was more famous than Biggie when Biggie was, was still trying to come up. Tupac was already a platinum artist and was a movie star and Biggie really wanted Tupac to help him get to that level, and Tupac was happy to do that. He really loved Biggie's style, and whenever they saw each other, they got together, they partied, Tupac let Biggie play on his shows, and it wasn't until Tupac came to New York in 1994 to to shoot a movie called Above the Rim, he played a gangster, a real-life gangster, and he, he sort of started hanging around with some some real life gangsters from New York to sort of learn the part to to really do the method acting and Biggie warned him against this but ultimately it it was probably these associations that led to Tupac getting shot in New York non-fatally in 1994 and then like I said he blamed Biggie for not warning him that this was going to happen and so that's when the wheels completely fell off their relationship and and Tupac began going on this crusade against against Biggie. Well, I think it's also probably important to kind of take a little bit of a step back here to talk about some of the 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 people behind Biggie and Tupac. Um I think we've we've kind of maybe talked around the role of Suge Knight and Death Row Records. You've mentioned Death Row Records. Um who is Suge Knight and and how did he um, sort of affect West Coast rap. And then on the East Coast side, what's the role that um, uh, Puff Daddy or Sean Combs is playing, especially uh, in this beef between um, Biggie and Tupac? Well, Suge Knight was, he, he came up in the industry as a, as a bodyguard. And then he got in with Ruthless Records when he was the bodyguard for a rapper called the DOC and he he became DOC's bodyguard and then he started kind of talking to Dr. Dre and Dr. Dre was saying that he didn't think he was getting paid what he was supposed to get paid either like Dr. like Ice Cube before him he started thinking that he was getting screwed over and so eventually Suge said well listen I think you are getting screwed over too we should leave Easy and Jerry Heller and Ruthless Records and start our own label called Death Row. And, and Dre agreed to do it. And, you know, this was a time when Dr. Dre was one of the best and most well-known producers in hip-hop. And it was, uh, he just abandoned everything to, to go with Suge. 
and at Death Row Records is is where Snoop Dogg made his debut, and Snoop Dogg would come, go on to be one of the biggest and most famous rappers of the gangster rap area. And then Tupac would later sign with Death Row too. So as Suge Knight's fame and his wealth grew, he became sort of a menace, and Dr. Dre began to feel that it was gangland interference. You know, Suge would have all his buddies from Compton, members of the Bloods, hang out at the studios. Uh, Suge was accused of pistol whipping this pair of brothers and all sorts of other nefarious stuff. And and now Suge is in jail awaiting uh, trial for murder from a case for last year. So meanwhile, on the East Coast, Puff Daddy was started it was starting his own label which is called bad boy and biggie smalls was their their most famous rapper bad boy sort of took a page from the playbook of death row and had the same sort of gangster tropes along with this sort of funk sound and so suge and puffy originally got along fine too but it wasn't until Tupac started his war against Biggie that sort of made Suge and Puffy enemies too. And that's when it kind of turned into the East Coast, West Coast thing as we think about it today. And just to kind of keep things clear, what years are we talking about when the East Coast, West Coast battle really started taking off and and, and not just being sort of a rhetorical battle about style, but being something more significant. Is this like 94, 93, 95? Yeah, about 95, the time that that Tupac got out of got out of prison, that's when he started really telling everyone who had listened that Biggie and Puffy were the enemy and that he was going to talk got to take them down. So from there, the two, the two labels, Death Row and Bad Boy were pulled in. And then the two cities, to some extent, Los Angeles and New York, other rappers from those cities joined in. I, I would say it's a little bit of a misnomer to say that the the two coasts were fully involved. It wasn't like the whole East Coast versus the whole West Coast, but it was it was mainly uh, rappers in these two cities. Um, but it, it it really captured the sort of the imagination, though, of of the hip hop community at that time. Um, just, I mean, just. I mean, even to certain, you still hear um, about about those. So, but I do have a, a question: is as as I was reading this, I mean, you go from you know from what like 1990, you go from "fuck the police" to which is sort of very much fighting against sort of um, oppression caused by whites and white supremacy and the police to the kind of this um, intra-racial battle. H- how do people view that that shift? from something that was maybe with hip hop having um, a real concern about social justice and political justice to something that was sort of about just set- settling beefs among rappers. Do they talk about that at all? Yeah, it was definitely disturbing. Uh, it's not to say that, that beef and hip hop didn't have a precedent, you know, since, since the very early days of the genre, rappers had been battling against each other on record but usually that's where it stopped. It was just, it was disses and it was, you know, funny trying to one up the other guy. But along the way, particularly in a lot of these West Coast albums, it got really real. 
And one of the turning points was with when 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 Dr. Dre left NWA, he released The Chronic, which had some really scathing disses against Easy E and Jerry Heller. And in songs like in songs like Dre Day, he really he really comes at them hard. And then Easy E responded in song with his his he had a song called Real Compton City G's that shot back at Dr. Dre. And so it really increased the rhetoric and the two camps, Death Row and Ruthless, when they would encounter each other, they're, you know, as I, as I talk about in original gangsters, there were times when they almost like killed each other. They, you know, it, it, it really got serious, but it wasn't until the Tupac and Biggie dispute that things completely, the violence really jumped from just being on record to being in real life. And this was, this was disturbing and particularly so with Tupac who had been, like you said, really, uh, really talked about social justice and uh, uplifting black people was one of his main central themes. And so, uh, you know, he really seemed to go off the rails at the end there. And so, I guess this is the obligatory question, um, especially because the book really explores this in, in a lot of detail. Um, based on your research and based on all the people you spoke with, what is your best answer to the question of who shot Biggie and who shot Tupac? I looked at all the different theories and really combed through each one. And to me, the theories that made the most sense were those developed by an LAPD detective named Greg Kading who was investigating both of, the, both of those murders. And he believes that a Compton Crip named Orlando Anderson is the one who killed Tupac. So this was in Las Vegas the same day that in, in 1996, the same day that they all went to see the Mike Tyson fight. And after the fight, Tupac and Suge and a group of people encountered this guy, Orlando Anderson, at the MGM Grand Casino. And they they admitted, you know, he was kind of a rival of theirs. Supposedly he'd stolen a chain from a member of their crew. And so they gave him this vicious beatdown that was captured by the cameras right in the middle of the casino there. And according to Greg Kading and others, Orlando Anderson, after that, sort of regrouped went back to his hotel and came back with a crew of guys and who shot and they shot Tupac and, and killed him right there. Not far from the, from the strip with hundreds of people as witnesses, although the case is still not solved and Orlando Anderson himself has since been murdered. So in, in the case of, of Biggie, there's, there's strong reason to believe, if you believe Kading's theory, that Suge Knight ordered it as payback for the killing of Tupac and that the, the man who killed Biggie was a member of Suge's crew. His name is, is Poochie Faust. Poochie is dead himself as well. Um, uh, a lot of people, some people believe that Puff Daddy ordered Orlando or, or offered Orlando Anderson some money to kill Tupac, but there's no evidence. There's no proof of that. And it's sort of one man's word against another in that case. And, and this has probably been the question that sort of 
you know, um, has been on a lot of people's mind is given that these Tupac and Biggie were just huge stars. And, and especially with Tupac's death, it, it happened very publicly. How come police have not been able to solve or weren't able to solve the crimes? This is definitely something that's troubled a lot of people. And it seems like if they were popular white celebrities, that it might have been certainly solved by now. But it seems to be a combination of police indifference, sort of police uh, screwing things up, as well as eyewitnesses who didn't want to talk to the police, at least in the case of Tupac. So there's been all sorts of theories floated about that. It was this massive police cover up. And I don't believe that necessarily. But I do think that the police, particularly in Las Vegas, didn't really do what they they could have done. They didn't they didn't work smartly. And also that the eyewitnesses, there were a ton of eyewitnesses to Tupac's murder, people in the death row crew, people in Tupac's backing group, the outlaws and uh, bodyguards. And it is kind of shocking that none of them really were able to come up with a definitive uh, story to tell the police about, you know, all the, the details that happened when Tupac was shot. One of the one of the things about being a college professor who teaches about the history of popular music, um, it's sort of been interesting teaching or trying to talk about uh, this era of of rap music because many of my students now who were born, um, you know, in the mid to late nineties, they see Ice Cube and Snoop Dogg as pitchmen and kind of these fun, loving, almost uncle kind of figures. Um, what do you make of how? All, all, I mean, Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, and Snoop Dogg have really transformed their images um, from where they were, uh, you know, almost 20 years ago. In some ways, it's kind of shocking that these guys like Snoop Dogg, who are such vocal gangbangers and had such raunchy and violent music, would become the most family-friendly pitchmen and, you know, Snoop Dogg playing golf with Lee Iacocca, Ice Cube making these family-friendly movies like Are We There Yet? and becoming sort of a comic a Hollywood presence and, and sort of a mogul as a director and a producer. But in other ways, it, it it's kind of a natural evolution, I think. I think Ice Cube was, was really, in his young 20s and his late teens, he was really into pissing people off and getting a reaction. And that was sort of his hallmark. But eventually, I think he got tired of... <laughs> making so many people mad and he wanted to, to do something that was, you know, that he, he developed a talent for that was less confrontational. And, and after the movie boys in the hood, which ice cube was in, he really took off in Hollywood followed, you know, and, and later did Friday. And, uh, it, it, you know, it, there's, there's something that another one of his many talents that he really did a good job utilizing. What do you make of sort of Dr. Dre, who, you know, um, obviously was always a genius um, as a producer, um, who he seemed like he kind of plateaued or disappeared for a while. And now he's come back really in the, just the last few years in just such a huge way with, with beats and some other things. Um, what has sort of what has sort of led to this sort of rise of, of Dr. Dre? Dr. Dre, after he left 
Death Row Records, he partnered with Jimmy Iovine to start his own label, which is called Aftermath. And Jimmy Iovine was a record producer who'd done all sorts of big albums with groups like U2 in the 70s and 80s. But with Dre, um, he found this partnership that was really perfect for both of them. And they they trust each other. You know, I, I got to interview them both together a couple of years ago. They they really love each other and and are partners in just about everything they do. And that included not just music, but this headphones company called Beats. And it, it developed into this behemoth that was acquired by Apple not long ago for $3 billion. And so it, it really established Dre as... Uh, a businessman who's, you know, was even more successful in the realm of business than he was in music. And so now he's, he's practically a billionaire. So um, I guess I also have to ask the question about uh, straight out of Compton, the movie. Um, what was your take of the movie? Um, were there any gaps that surprised you? Was there any things that you thought the movie did particularly well? I thought the movie was good overall. I enjoyed watching it. There were definitely a lot of holes in the story. And, you know, that's part of my book, Original Gangsters. It really, it tells the whole story. It fills in the gaps. It corrects the things that are just plain flat out wrong. But I thought that it did a good job of creating a sense of time and place. I was particularly impressed with the L.A. riots scene and in the the kind of uh, extras on the DVD you can see more of this where they really do a good job um, creating what it might have been like at the time but uh, you know the the movie was produced by Dr. Dre Ice Cube and Easy's widow Tamika Woods Wright and so naturally it's going to kind of try to make them look really cool and you know not tell anything that they don't want to tell and so my book uh we corrected the record in that regard. One of the people who, who you do write about and who, again, whose, whose role is maybe diminished in the film a little bit is MC Ren. And he kind of comes out as maybe somebody who is a little bit of um, someone who, whose contributions have been overlooked a little bit. So maybe this is an opportunity for you to um, help straighten that record out. So what, what would you want people to know about MC Ren? MC Ren is definitely an underrated member of the group who had this really dynamic flow and they, they wouldn't have succeeded without him. He, his solo work after NWA is really interesting too, particularly when he joined with the Nation of Islam and his, his lyrics kind of took a hard turn away from the sort of aggressive, more misogynist stuff that he had been known for and he, he had kind of a spiritual aspect that came through. And, and I got to interview him a couple of years ago in Palm Springs, California, where he lives now. And now he's become a, you know, a more traditional Muslim and he, you know, it was, it was great to talk to him and, and great to tell his story because it, like you said, it, it too often gets the short shrift. So I guess right before we go, I guess, um, can you maybe just say, like, what do you think is the legacy of um, the, this era of West Coast rap? I think the legacy of gangster rap 
on the West Coast is that it it really remade all of hip hop and, and remade pop music too in a large way. Before these gangster rappers, you couldn't really didn't have this this freedom of expression in the genre. To, and and you know people weren't really telling things how they really are from the neighborhoods where a lot of these rappers come from. And you you know you can say that it's that hip hop today is overly violent, it's overly misogynistic. Um, and there's, there's a lot to be said for that. And, and it comes directly from gangster rap, the, the music, the hip hop that's popular today, you wouldn't call it gangster rap. There's all these different subgenres, but the themes and the, the attitude is really directly descended from it. So there's no doubt to me that these artists put their, their stamp on, on this music and on the culture and, you know, it influenced it's influenced popular culture everywhere from the way kids dress to the slang people use, you know, to um, the fact that Compton and South Central are part of the everyday vernacular even today. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to, to speak with me. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to the New Books and Music podcast. Today I've been talking with Ben Westoff, the author of Original Gangstas, The Untold Story of Dr. Dre, Easy e Ice Cube, Tupac Shakur, and The Birth of West Coast Rap. This is your host, Richard Schur. Thank you for listening. <laughs>